And we'll ask the uh, rest of you that are left in here, adults and kids alike, to take uh, your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Before we dive in here to to Acts and look at this this morning, I want to say thank you to Jared last week for uh, delivering God's Word out of Ephesians 5 and helping us think about music in the church. And uh, what a great passage to look at that. Jared did a great job handling the Word and and, and challenging us to examine what the Scripture had to say about music. We've all got our opinions about music, believe me. (laughs) uh, But when it comes to our opinions and our preferences, we have to leave those aside and take the principles of Scripture. And those can be applied in many different ways. Um, It's not about the style of music. It's about the content of the music. And more important than that, about the content of our heart and uh, the attitude of heart. But I, I I was so encouraged by that and thought it was very clear. Uh, I had a meeting in Houston on Tuesday, so I needed a substitute for my Bible class with my 10th graders. So guess who I asked to teach? Jared. And guess who I, what I asked him to teach? I asked him to teach what he taught here. And I came back on that Wednesday, and those guys were, they were engaged with what Jared had been teaching them. And we had a nice discussion on that, and none of them had ever thought about any of those questions that were asked. Why, why sing? Why do we sing? How do we sing? All those kind of things are clear in the scripture. And, and the reality is, as I think about none of those guys in that class, 19 um, 10th grade boys in a Christian school, okay, none of them had really considered any of that. And the reality is, my guess is that there's many people, even in our body, who have never really considered those things. We just do them, right? And we need to be better about asking those kind of questions. And, and, we, and the answers are all found in God's word. Well, we're going to return to our series in Acts this morning in Acts 13. Um, in this uh, series we've entitled Missio Day, The Mission of God. And uh, it's been about seven weeks since we've been in Acts. Uh, we took a, a break for uh, uh, four weeks or so to do a series on the Word of God. And uh, hopefully that was encouraging to you. And then we had some other kind of standalone messages, but it's been, been seven weeks. So I, I thought it'd be important that we be reminded about some foundational truths and foundational um, things about the book of Acts before we dive back in here and look at Acts. So let's be reminded about the theme of Acts. I'm looking for my... There it is. Um, the theme of Acts. The theme of Acts is the mission of the church. That's what Acts is all about, is the mission of the church, the mission the church has been called to. And we see in um, Acts 1.8 the outline of the mission of the church. So if, if you look up here... Um, uh, Okay, they got me all messed up now. So back here, I no longer can see what I want to see. Okay, that's okay. All right, you all can see it. All right, here we go. And we're, we're working on some technical things to help the music team, so don't worry about me. I'm, I'm fine. I got it right here in front of me, actually. All right, how's that? Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power. This is Jesus, and he's, he's leaving his disciples and, and getting ready to ascend to heaven um, after he'd appeared to them and over 500 other people. We, we find in other parts of the scripture. He, he's, he's giving them, in a sense, their marching orders. And he tells them, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. All right? What does it say? My witnesses where? It says, Both in... Jerusalem, okay, the central city, all Judea region, and Samaria, north 
of that region and to what? To the remotest parts of the earth or the ends of the earth. And uh, we've seen in the book of Acts how the, th this has been carried out in the first 12 chapters. And in fact, uh, that's the outline of the book of Acts. And I've said this many times, and if you get that, you will understand the book of Acts. If not, it's just a bunch of disjointed stories and some pretty exciting stories, pretty amazing things that happen. But if you don't understand that this is the outline of the book of Acts, this is the, the mission, or the, the theme of the book of Acts is the mission of the church, and this outlines the mission of the church. So it will really help us as we walk through Acts. So we've been through uh, 12 chapters already. In Acts 2, uh, Jesus did exactly what he told him. He says He told him to go to Jer Jerusalem, and he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the Holy Spirit did come upon them in a powerful way, and indwelt, indwelt people for the very first time in a permanent way. It never been it never happened before. Now the Holy Spirit, the, the, the part of the Trinity, dwells in those who know Christ, and He gave him amazing ability to proclaim the message, which is to be my witnesses, right in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria. And they even in, in Acts two we see on the day of Pentecost, He enables them to supernaturally speak in other languages so they can get the gospel out more. It's also a condemnation to the nation of Jews, and we'll deal with that later when we have a whole message just on that whole thing about what's this whole speaking in tongues thing, but, um, and what does the scripture teach about it. But it was a, really a condemnation on the Jews. It was prophesied that when people come, they speak in other languages they'd never um, spoken before. All of a sudden, I start speaking German. I've never spoken before. It would be a condemnation on the nation of, uh, nation of Israel for the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But that happens, and they're empowered to go out and share the gospel. And then, in, in, in really, in Acts 2 through 7, you see the message going out to Jerusalem and Judea. Right? That's what we saw as we studied through those chapters. And then chapters 8 and 9, it gets to Samaria. And that, I mean, for the Jews was like over the top because they hated the Samaritans. But sure enough, it goes to Samaria and also goes, begins to go out to the remotest part of the earth because Philip, if you remember, in Acts 8, he has this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. This guy who had come to Jerusalem from Africa and goes back um, to, is on his way back to Africa. And I just, I mentioned this before, but I can't help but think that um, as he took that back to Ethiopia, it's really more of a region than just the country of Ethiopia today, but that maybe my nephew who is Ethiopian and my, my brother adopted him, maybe his family heard the gospel because of Philip sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian and took it back. Just, it, it always, um, it, that, that story now means even more to me than it ever has before. But then in Acts 10 through 11, those, two, those chapters, it begins to go to the Gentiles. And we see Gentiles come. Rich Gentiles and poor Gentiles begin to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They hear the message. That's the remotest part of the earth. And then in Acts 12, the Lord, uh, through Luke, reminds the church at Jerusalem that even though this has gone out to the Gentiles, I'm not done with you yet. I'm still going to use you, the church of Jerusalem, uh, to do great things. It's a great reminder. And then at the end of that um, uh, chapter, in the beginning of chapter 13, uh, the focus now is going to be on Paul's ministry. It's been on Peter's ministry. Now it's going to be on Paul's ministry. And it's going to be to the remotest part of the earth. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. The gospel is going to go out all over the earth. And in order to get the gospel out, though, to the remotest part of uh, the earth, uh, there's going to need to be a, a church, a community of Christ followers, who will reach people with the gospel. They'll be, build people up with the gospel, and then they'll send them out with the gospel. If that's going to happen, more people are going to have to go out besides just Paul. 
All right, so, and sure enough, at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, we run into this church, the church at Antioch, which is just nor- is on the north side of what we call Palestine, the north side of we, the Holy Land, or Israel, um, uh, Antioch. And, 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 and we discovered um, in our last time we were get together in the beginning of chapter 13 that this church in Antioch, they were committed to some, some things. First of all, they were committed to being gracious with what God had given them so they, they could help others fulfill the mission of the church. Uh, they were also committed to embracing the beauty of diversity in the church. That there's people from all over the world, people who look different, people who come from different cultures. And you saw that in Antioch. That they, they embraced this diversity in the church. And then they also committed to seeking God's will and the fulfilling of the mission of the church. They, they got together and they prayed and they sought God's will. God, how would you have us be a part of what you're doing in the world? How would you have us be a part of fulfilling the mission of the church and taking the gospel all over the world? We want to know. So they went to God in prayer. And then, and then lastly, they, they, they were committed to going. Not just praying. Often, if we're, if we're honest, it's a lot easier just to pray about it, isn't it? We'll pray, we're going to pray about that. But God doesn't want us just to pray about it. He wants us to act upon what He shows us to do in His Word. He wants us to be doers of the Word, not just hearers, not just prayers of the Word. He wants us to be hearers. He wants us to be prayers, but He wants us to put it in the action. So they were committed, this church in Antioch, to going to help fulfill the mission of the church. And, and that's where we, we pick up this morning is in verse 4. That's where we left off last time. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 13 this morning. And, and, and the title of the message this morning is, Who Said It Would Be Easy? Who Said It Would Be Easy? So let, let's pray before we dive in here to this passage. Lord, we are at your mercy to understand your word. But Lord, we're so thankful that you've given it to us and you have indwelt us with the Holy Spirit that we can understand your word. So Lord, I pray that uh, now that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds uh, to understand what you have for us this morning in this passage. Um, but not only to understand it, Lord, but to put it into action in our lives. And Lord, thank you that your word um, is sufficient for all things. And uh, you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about this passage, I just want to share this uh, story with you. In 1980, a young man from Rwanda uh, was forced by his tribe to either renounce Christ or lose his life. He chose the latter. And when they uh, went and found this this, this young Christian man who who basically became a martyr, they found among his things a copy of this commitment that I'm going to read to you. Many of you have probably heard it before, but I think it's worth sharing in light of our passage this morning. This is what they found on in his belongings. I'm a part of Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My presence make my present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, am lifted up by prayer and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. 
I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifices, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all, to, until all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. You see, this young man who was martyred understood that being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, does not mean that the road will be easy. In fact, the Bible promises just the opposite. Uh, we're reminded of this in 2 Timothy. Paul writes to uh, Timothy, Indeed, all who live, choose a desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not might be, they will be. Those who follow Jesus Christ, those who choose to live a godly life will be persecuted. And yet, all too often in our world today, and I shamefully say this, especially in the United States of America, becoming a follower of Christ is all too often presented as the easy road. That's funny. I must be on the wrong road. If you've walked with Christ for any amount of time and it's all been easy, whew, you're not walking the same walk I'm walking or anyone else in the Bible ever walked. See, often it's presented as come to Jesus and all your problems will end. If you've heard that, I'm sorry. It's not true. Come to Jesus and you will be blessed financially. Come to Jesus and you'll never experience sickness. Come to Jesus and you'll be popular. Come to Jesus. It's just easy. Well, there is a passage of Scripture where Jesus says that my burden is easy. My yoke is light. He does say that. But it's not talking about just life living. It's talking about his burden is easy. Is that we no longer bear the weight of our sins. He does for us. That's the easy part. He takes care of that part. But the part of life and difficulty is here. It's promised. And that persecution, that difficulty may come in all Shapes and sizes. And maybe you're thinking, well, I've never really been persecuted. Nobody's tried to take my life. Well, it's okay. You should, there's other kind of persecution. Sometimes it's just difficulty, um, not just not pers persecution for living for your faith. Sometimes it's just difficulty of life. But when, the persecution may look like this. You're at work, and you're asked to cheat on a form. What do you do? Do you cheat on the form? Do you lie when you fill that out? Or do you do what God would want you to do? And maybe if you're told if you don't, you lose your job. That's persecution. Because I hope, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we would fill the form outright and lose our job. Rather than dishonor God by lying. And we could go on and on and on. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. You're ostracized. There's a Christian family. You do things right. We're not going to invite them over to our house. Whatever it might be, there's all kinds. There's some people in this world that are losing their life over the gospel. Thankfully, we're not at that point, but in some ways I pray that we will be at that point. Why would I say that? That's terrible, isn't it? You know where the church is growing? Where the greatest persecution is. Where people are losing their life for the gospel. That's where the church is growing. That's where you begin to find out who's a follower of Jesus and who's not a follower of Jesus. When things really get turned up. But I'm praying that the Lord might turn up the heat here in the United States and we would realize that the road is not easy. Who said it would be easy? God said it wouldn't be. That's who I want to listen to. And I know that's who you want to listen to too. It's not going to be easy. Um, this, is why, this is what we're going to see here in, in Acts 13, 4 through 13. The very beginning on Paul's first missionary journey, the road is not easy. 
And it's a precursor to the rest of his ministry. And in fact, when he was converted, God told Ananias to tell him that he must learn how much he must suffer for my sake. And then the rest of Acts, you see Paul suffer and those who are with him. Uh, So let's look here, and, and my hope is that we look at these verses this morning that we'll understand and be reminded that following Jesus, seeking to fulfill the mission of the church, will include difficulty, but by his grace, he will carry us through the difficulties and use us to get the gospel to nations. So after I walk down through these verses uh, here in, in Acts, I'll come back and, and point to some implications that lead to applications to our own life. But look with me here at, at Acts 13.4, um, beginning in Acts 13, and then we'll read verses 4 and 5 right now. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So here we see Paul go out on his first missionary journey, uh, along with Barnabas, and we see that he's in verse 2, that's, it says they went out. And in verse 5, we realize they went, also went out with John, and this is John Mark. Um, and we'll find out this John, the, the difference between John and John Mark, the Apostle John and John Mark, just um, they say John Mark so that you can differentiate who, which John is it, okay? This is John Mark. Um, but I want you to look briefly with me at this map, okay? So, I'll try to do both. Go back, pushing the wrong button. I'll try to do both sides. So they start here, my shaky hand there, Antioch, okay? They come down to Seleucia, which is basically the port of Antioch, all right? It's the opening um, into the Mediterranean Sea. And then they take a ship to Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus. It's about 60 miles from Antioch. You could actually, on a clear day, you can see Antioch. Let me show you guys over here where we're at. You probably can see that, but there's, oops, Antioch. And then there's Cyprus, about 60 miles on a clear day, you can actually see it. And then they, 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 and we'll see that they actually come to Pamphlus, which is on the, all the way on the other side um, of uh, Cyprus. And then you'll see, we'll, we'll, we're going to do this whole journey with, with Paul, but we're going to do it a lot easier than he did. All right? All right it's going to be a lot easier for us to go on this journey uh, with Paul. But, um, and what I want you to notice is that God calls them to go. And guess what? They went. They went. That's a characteristic of someone who knows Jesus Christ. When he calls us to go, we go. And it's to different places. It's to different people. It's not all the same place. I don't want anybody to feel like if you, if, you, know, if you don't go to Rwanda that you're not being obedient. If he didn't call you to go to Rwanda, don't go to Rwanda. Go where he calls you. Maybe it's right here in the Brazosport area. For, guess what? For right now, it is because you're here. But if it calls you to go someplace else, you need to go someplace else. And that's what they did. They go. I mean, Paul, they could have just hung out in Antioch. Things are going great in Antioch. I mean, there's not a whole lot of persecution going on in Antioch. The church is growing. I mean, they're sending out missionaries all over the place. I mean, financially, they're doing pretty well. There's lots to eat. There's not a lot of struggles going on. So they could have just stayed there, but they, they go. These guys go, and, and, and all three of them, um, Paul, uh, Barnabas, and John Mark. And so, as followers of Jesus, they're committed to go, and, and we have to ask the question, are we committed to go? Are we committed to where God, go where God calls us to? Now, why would they go to Cyprus? All right? They don't tell us exactly why, but we can deduce some things just from the, the context of Acts. Guess who's from Cyprus? In chapter 4, we learn that Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's a Cyprian, is what it says. All right, that's, what, that's where Barnabas is from. So there's one reason that he probably had family 
on the island. It was only about 60 miles from Antioch, which I mentioned. Um, so it wasn't too far. It, it was where the Greek and Roman culture met up with the east. All right? the, the cultures begin to mix at Cyprus. It was, un, it was actually a, a, a under Roman control, but, um, but, but, but there's also, it, uh, we learn um, from our passage here in verse 5, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. There's a bunch of Jews on the island as well. Not only are there Romans and people who are Greek speaking and people from that kind of culture, there's a bunch of Jews on the island as well. Now how do we know that that's the case? Well, we know that, I'm going the wrong way here. All right, we, we know that, well, somehow, I've lost complete control. Okay. Well, yeah, it's not 2 Timothy 3, 12, that's my fault, all right? It's Acts eleven nineteen as well. Okay, let's do this. Let me control, please. There we go. This is actually Acts eleven nineteen. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in correction in connection with Stephen made their way. So Stephen was martyred. Okay, they were persecuted. It says made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. So some of these Christians that were scattered, some of the places that they went, or one of the places they went, was to Cyprus. So not only are there Jewish people there, but there's Christians there on the island of Cyprus. So think about this. You've got, it's, it's, it's Barbas' hometown. It's a, a Roman, uh, it's under Roman control. So there's a, there's a lot of Roman influence, a lot of Greek influence there. Um, there. There are Jews and there are Christians all on this little island. Well, it's a pretty good sized island, but this island of Cyprus. So it, it seems like it would be a great place to start the outreach to the world, to the Gentile world, right here on Cyprus. Um, now, now look with me what happens in verse 6. So here they are, they come to Cyprus, and in verse, beginning in verse 6, we'll read down through verse 8. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they take the gospel throughout the island. They, they go from east to west, from Salamis all to Pamphus, which was the capital city. And they, they meet with this guy called Sergius Paulus. All right? many, many people, and I couldn't find any real evidence, many people think Saul changed his name to Paul because this was his first convert in a sense, so he, was, he named himself after his first convert. I don't know if that has any merit. Uh, maybe you've heard that before. I'm not sure it, that's the case. But his name was Sergius Paulus. It is very similar, Paulus. But the, the, he was the proconsul of Cyprus. He was the prominent man on Cyprus. He was the governor that served under Roman authority on Cyprus. And in verse 7, look what it says he does. He summons Paul, uh, Barnabas and Saul, and, and sought, he wanted to hear the word of God from them. So obviously, the Lord was working in the life of Sergius Paulus. Because there's nowhere in Scripture do we ever find someone that the Lord is not working on that they would want to hear His Word. Those the Lord is not already working on, they don't want to hear His Word. In fact, the Scripture says they refuse to hear His Word. They don't want to listen to anything to do with His Word. 
So he's obviously working in his life already. They also met this other guy uh, with Sergius Paulus. And verse 6 introduces this man. His name is Bar-Jesus. All right, Bar-Jesus. What does Bar mean? Bar means son of. Okay. And Jesus, or Joshua, Yeshua, which is a Hebrew name for Jesus, or Joshua, means God of salvation, or God saves. So this guy's name was son of God's salvation. This is this guy's name. It's ironic that this was his name. And we're going to see that here in a second. He's also referred to, uh, if you look at verse 8, but Elymas, okay, the magician, uh, this, this was actually a title he had given himself. It means sage or wise one. This was a self-name. Don't, don't call me Bar Jesus. I'm Elymas. I'm the sage. I'm the wise one. And you'll see why, why, why I say that here in a second. So notice how he's described. He's a magician, or your translation may say sorcerer. He claimed to have power over the spirit world. Right? Secondly, he's, he's described as a false prophet. He was out to deceive people for monetary gain and for power. Why do you think he's with Sergius Paulus? Who's the most powerful man in Cyprus? That's the most powerful man. So he's going to hook up with him. That's what he was all about. He was a false prophet. And then he was Jewish. He acknowledged uh, uh, the Jewish belief and the, the, God, the one God, the one true God. He acknowledged that. And his, he used this knowledge and mixed it with error. Okay? That's what happened. So just remember this. Rat poisoning is 95% cornmeal and 5% arsenic. And it's the 5% that will kill you. And that's what his message was. We don't know how much percentage was error, but we know it was partly he said some things that people would relate to. He was Jewish, and he used that to his advantage. Many times people come knocking at our door, and they talk about Jesus. Oh, wow, well, come on in. Let's talk about, I love Jesus, too. You love Jesus? Oh, great. And yet you begin to listen to what they believe about Jesus, and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's completely different. And they use the same words, so they must be with us, right? Be careful. And that was what the kind of person here that Bar-Jesus or Elymas was. He was, he was a, a, a deceiver. All right? And, and, and he's, he's very similar to Simon the sorcerer who we met back in Acts 8 when, when Philip and John and Peter had to deal with him. Um, Bar-Jesus was Mr. Popularity when it came to the things of the spirit world. And people went to him. I mean, maybe even Sergius Paulus called him. I want this guy around me. He seems to know what's going on when it comes to the spirit world. I need this in, in my corner. We, we don't know that for sure, but, but, but he's with him. And, and, and he, he had all the power. Everybody looked to him. He was number one. And all of a sudden, here comes Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. And not only that, but Sergius Paulus, the guy he's hooked up with, calls those guys to come and give him information about what God would say. Uh-oh, competition. That's exactly how he sees this. Now i got competition. I may not be number one anymore. He's calling other people to hear about <coughs> who God is. So, uh, after, after Sergius Paulus does this, after he calls Paul and, and, and Barnabas to hear the word of God, look what Bar-Jesus uh, Bar or Elymas does in verse 8. It says, But Elymas, the magician, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, the word opposing here has the idea that they entered into a debate. It wasn't just, stop. That there was an actual conversation or a debate going on between Paul and Barnabas and Bar-Jesus. There's a debate about the truth. And 
so he, he spews this heresy, all right, um, and false teaching out against the gospel. And, and, and we know that, that he's threatened because it, it, it says he, the pro, he, he seeks to turn the proconsul away, speaking of Sergius Paulus, away from the faith. Sergius Paulus is hearing the gospel. He's hearing the truth about God. And Bar-Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. And then he just goes on with error. So notice what Paul uh, does, or Saul does next in verse 9. But Saul, we'll go down through <clears throat> verse 11, but Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled the, with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon me, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. See, Paul stood boldly in the face of this heretic who is making crooked, listen to this, he says, crooked the straight ways of the Lord. He stood boldly. He wasn't going to put up with it. Most people today would say, well, Paul was a little too harsh, wasn't he? Can you believe what he said to him? Look, look what he says. He says, you are full of deceit and fraud. Now, how many people do you say that to? All right? And then, he, then even better than that, he says, now think about this. His name is son of God's salvation. But what does Paul call him? You son of the devil. You're not a son of God's salvation. You're the son of the devil. Whoa. Anybody, anybody called, anybody called somebody the son of the devil before? I don't think so. All right? And then he goes on and he says, you enemy of all righteousness. The enemy of righteousness. This guy thought he was standing for righteousness. Well, I don't think he thought he was, he was purposely deceitful. But he was presenting like he was standing for righteousness. That he was hooked up with God. That he had all the answers. And Paul just exposes this man and his message for exactly what it was. His message was damning. Not freeing and not life-giving. You see, the difference between Bar Jesus' message and the gospel was the difference between heaven and hell. Paul knew what was at stake. This was not a little di a, a disagreement of what music you sing or what color the carpet is or what the name on the front of your church building is. This was the gospel was at stake. And he held nothing back as he exposed this man. Well, then the Lord brought a temporary blindness on Bar-Jesus. He sought to blind, Bar-Jesus sought to blind people with the message, with his message. So the Lord brought physical blindness on Bar-Jesus. The fact that it was temporary, think about this, it's just temporary blindness, shows the mercy of God, doesn't it? I mean, he, not only, here's what Bar-Jesus deserved, like all the rest of us that have ever sinned, right? Which would include all of us. The Bible said the wages of sin is what? Death. He deserved death. God could have just taken him out and been just. Right to do it. But he doesn't. He blinds him. And I think it's a word picture and, 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 a, and a physical illustration for him. You've been blinding people. So here, it's my turn. I'm blinding you now. But it's temporary. And, and it doesn't tell us when it went away. It just said it was temporary. just for a time. And, and perhaps after his physical blindness was done, he came to a saving faith in Jesus and was no longer spiritually blind. We don't know that. It doesn't say that. But maybe that's why it was temporary. Maybe God used it to teach him a lesson. You need my sight. You need my message. You need my gospel to save you from your sin. Now look at verse 12. 
Then the proconsul, meaning Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is exactly why Paul was so strong in opposing Bar-Jesus' message. Later in Paul's letter to the church of Rome, in chapter 1, verse 16, notice what he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel is, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it was this gospel that brought salvation to Sergius Paulus. That's why Paul was so adamant to call out this heretic, this person that was, was not giving a life-giving message, but a damning message. He was serious because he understood it was the gospel, the message of the good news that Jesus was sent to save us from the penalty power and the presence of sin. And it's faith in Jesus that saves us from that. That's why Jesus was sent. That's the gospel, the good news. And anything other than that is not good news. Now we live in a, in a world that, that all kinds of gospels are shared. All right? In fact, Paul in his letter to the church of Galatia, he says, if anyone comes preaching to you a gospel other than what we have preached, let them be accursed. It's the word anathema, eternally condemned. Because there's only one gospel. And in fact, it's, it's ironic that, he, that Paul would use the word gospel there because it's not good news. Because any other, any other world religion in the world teaches this. It's a spelling issue. And we've talked about this before. It, all other world religions, all other world views, teach how we're made right with God this way. They spell it this way. D-O. It's what we do. It's what we do. But Christianity spells it this way. D-O-N-E. Done. It's what He has done for us. It's what Christ did on the cross for us. Remember that God's standards, He says, be perfect as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. In 1 Peter. His standard is 100% and he's not grading on the curve. And the Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And we just said that the Bible also says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. We don't meet God's standard. We can never meet his standard. And if it's about what we do to trying to meet God's standard, we all go to hell. Is that good news? That's what the word gospel means. Gospel means good news. That's not good news at all. The good news is that someone paid the penalty of our sin so we could come into a right relationship with God. Now, let me say this, because some of you may be wondering, well, how about what we do? Well, listen, when you understand and embrace what he's done, it'll change what you do. Because what you do is not who you are. But who you are has a tremendous impact on what you, you do. And if who you are is rightly related to Jesus Christ through faith in what he's done for you, it'll change what you do. But it's about what he's done. That's good news. That's great news. And that's why Paul calls it the glorious gospel of, of the blessed God in Ephesians chapter 1. It's more than great. It's more than good. So, he, also, he, let's look at this. Verse 12. It says, And the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Another translation says it this way. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord of the Lord. See, the miracle affirmed the messengers. It was the message that brought salvation. Notice this. It says that he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. It doesn't say he was amazed. He saw the miracle. But that's not what turned him. That just confirmed the messengers 
all right, of God, but the message is what changed his heart. And that's the biggest miracle going. The biggest miracle in this passage is not um, Bar-Jesus becoming blind. The biggest miracle is Sergius Paulus coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the biggest miracle. That's the most beautiful miracle in this, in this passage. So it was not necessarily a miracle that did it. It was the message. Now, now look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, which would be Barnabas and John Mark, put out the sea from Pamphus and came to Perga and Pamphylia. We're going to look at this next week. But, but listen to this, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark left them. And later on in Acts, we'll, we'll learn that, that, that his desertion was not for a good reason. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was for fear. Maybe he said, you know what? I didn't sign up with this. I mean, the very first thing we do when we get off on our first missionary journey, the first island we go to, we run into a magician, and he's mad at us. He's arguing with us. It gets a little hostile. It gets a little heated. I didn't sign up for that. I'm going home. Whatever it is, and it may have had something to do with that and something else, we don't know. All right? He doesn't go on with them at this point. Now, I will say later on, him and, he and Paul are restored. It's beautiful. Um, but at this point, they're not. And, and he, he goes because it's difficult. In some ways, it was difficult, and he needed to leave. Let me ask this question again. Who said it would be easy? See, I don't know for sure about John Mark, but I do know for sure about a lot of people. They begin to walk with Christ, and it gets difficult, and they want to bail. Because somebody forgot to tell them up front, it'll be difficult. It'll be tough. There'll be pain involved. There'll be disappointment involved. There'll be discouragement involved. If you're here this morning and anyone told you it'll be easy, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. And maybe that's why John Mark tucked tail and run. We don't know. But it's the reason why most people, why most people do. All right, well, so what? Well, so we see this whole interaction here and this beginning of the missionary journey and, and this, this interaction with this magician and, and, and this, this government official coming to faith in Christ. So what? What difference does that make for us? Well, let me give you a few exhortations. I think the principles from this passage will help us put it into practice. Number one, expect difficulty as you follow Jesus and fulfill the mission of the church. Expect it. Expect it. I love what, what Kent Hughes writes concerning this. I want to read this to you. He says, There is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith, and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue, and you will never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because a movie or a play is offensive, and you will never be called a prig. You may not know what a prig is, but a dork or whatever you want to say. Too tight. All right. Never practice consistent honesty in business, and you will not lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy, and you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously, follow Christ, and you will experience a, a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to Him. So if you don't want to follow after Christ and 
stand up for the truth and love people enough to tell them that they need Jesus to be saved from their sin and all those other things, then you're in the wrong deal. Because <laughs> that's what, it's, it's part of that. Secondly, boldly confront heresy when it comes to the message of the mission of the church. Confront it. We've got to understand, just like Paul did, this is the difference between heaven and hell. This is serious business. Now, I'm not talking about secondary issues amongst Christians. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, what kind of music you sing, what your building looks like, the name of your building. I'm not talking about what you believe about the end times or someone else believes about the end times. I'm not talking about any of those kind of things. I'm talking about the gospel, the difference between heaven and hell, because those aren't the difference between heaven and hell. I'm talking about how we made right with God. We need to boldly confront that. Not, well, you know, that's their opinion. Their opinion's wrong. And it's leading people astray. And we need to call it out. So people aren't continue to be deceived by these people who perpetrate a gospel that's no gospel at all. Thirdly, know that the message of the gospel will bring about the fulfillment of the, message, the mission of the church. We've got to know that. It's the message of the gospel that will bring about the fulfillment of the church. God's gospel, God's word, the good news that Jesus does save us, will change the hearts of people. Nothing else will. We've got to know that as we go out into our world, as we interact with people in our businesses and in our neighborhood. And maybe God's called you to go someplace else. Wherever it is, we've got to know that that message of the gospel is what will fill the message of the church. Not our creativity, not our cleverness, but that message changes the lives of people. And if you know Christ, you know what I'm talking about. I would ask that by God's grace, we join with this young martyr from Rwanda and we become part of the fellowship of the unashamed. By God's grace, just like Paul to here, we stand up for the gospel no matter what it will cost. I'm going to read this one more time because I think it's worth it. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I, am no, I, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, pro promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my ray is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. And my prayer is you will be too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for allowing us to see here um, from this encounter that Paul and Barnabas and Luke had uh, on the island of Cyprus um, with this magician, Lord, that your message of the gospel is the only true message. Would empower us 
to stand up for the truth, to live the truth, to lovingly call people to trust in Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, let us watch you as we do that. Change the hearts and lives of people and give them life, forgiveness, and freedom that only can come from you. Lord, remind us that this walk with you, walk with your Son, is difficult. But you promise the grace and the strength to endure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.